the gospel is not narrow. It's abundant and loving and gracious. And when we take a stand morally for the holiness of God and the sanctity of life and on matters of marriage and sexuality, we're doing it not in a strident way, not in an arrogant way, but a gentle and loving and gracious way. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. As we come to the scripture reading this morning, I would invite you to follow along in your Bibles. If you have your own, if not, it's on page 1924 in the blue Bible in front of you. And just a a word of warning this morning that the passage that Richard will be preaching on it's tough sledding. It's, it's a very complex passage, so um, I would ask that you pay attention and sort of try to uh, absorb it as we read God's Word this morning in preparation for the preach Word. Listen to God's Word. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. I was given a read like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have the power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Verse 7. Now when they have finished their testimony... The beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Verse 11, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would give insight and understanding to your word, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us in all truth. We pray for Richard as he now preaches the word. Give him a spirit of courage and boldness because of Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. Now, having said that Revelation contains symbolic imagery, sometimes when it comes to understanding and reading the Scriptures, we take it figuratively. Other times, we take it literally. Now, is John being told by God, go and measure the temple in Jerusalem? He's not, because this is the year A.D. 95-96, Back in A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem was razed to the ground by the Romans. There was a Jewish revolt from the year A.D. 67 right through to 70, and then the Romans came and razed it to the ground. If you are familiar with Jerusalem at all, you will sometimes see pictures or images on YouTube of the only part that's remaining, or the main part that's remaining, is called the Western Wall, popularly known as the Wailing Wall. And sometimes you'll see on YouTube and photographs and various places men standing in front of the Western Wall like this, rocking back and forward as they pray. That wall was there as part of the temple, and it's been there since, of course, way before AD 70, but that's the remaining main section. If you go around to the, uh, if you go south and then to the east, you'll see some other bits and pieces, but for the main part, it's there. So, we don't think that John has been asked, go and measure the temple, because it's not there. What we understand here is this, that John was being asked to measure the temple symbolically. Now, what does that mean? Now, in First and Second Corinthians, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he says to them this, Do you not know you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? Same language. And whenever you come across a difficult passage in Scripture, it's always good biblical hermeneutics, which is the interpretation of Scripture, is to take what you know and shine a light onto a passage you're uncertain of. And what New Testament scholars tell us is this, that John was not being asked to measure the ruins of the old temple, but he is in fact being asked to measure the church. Now, what do we mean by that? We mean this. Not only in the Scriptures are we told, are you not a temple of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes the church is talked about as the temple of the living God, where the Holy Spirit spirit dwells. And that's the individuals as opposed to the building. Now, we know we have an emotional attachment to a building like this, the sanctuary. It's a wonderful and spectacular building. But does God live here? No. But we talk about it as the house of God. 
And naturally, you understand when you're speaking symbolically or figuratively, that's what's going on. And in essence, John has been told this by God. Measure the people of God. I want to know them. I want to know them intimately. I want to know them inside out. I want to know their hopes and their dreams and their longings and their passions. And I want them to know that I know them and I know them thoroughly and I know them fully. And John has been told this for this reason. And some of you will be aware of this and have already made the connection in your mind. When John is writing, Christians across the Roman Empire were under persecution. John had been arrested for his faith. He was exiled to the Greek island of Patmos, and he was there. Some of the people John was writing to would have lost family members under the persecution under Domitian. Domitian was the first Roman emperor to have empire-wide persecution. Others, it's been local or regional, but now for the first time it's across the empire. And what John is saying to his original readers is this, even in the midst of persecution, even when you're shaking your head and thinking, what on earth is going on? Why this chaos and mayhem and violence and war and injustice and poverty and hunger? Look at everything that's going around us. John is reminding his readers that God will preserve you and he will look after you, and he will not let you go, and he knows everything about you. And so, the language of measuring, the language of counting, the language of the altar we saw in those opening verses was to remind the people of God that God has them, will not let them go, will persevere with them and for them, and preserve them throughout all eternity. And that's what's going on in these early verses. And that is extremely good news for John's original readers, and it's also good news for us as well. So, all of that is wrapped up in the first couple of verses. Now, he goes on to say, do not measure the court of the Gentiles. And the court of the Gentiles is symbolic or figurative language for the Romans. These are the Romans on the outside looking in, and he's saying, don't measure them because I will not preserve them. And we know, of course, as we look back on history, that empires come and empires go. Governments rise, government falls. Leaderships are sometimes in ascendancy, other times on the descendancy. And all of that is there, and we see that taking place throughout history. Now, having said that, let me take you to the most difficult section of the, the chapter. And then John writes, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, and if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and will devour their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, my head is spinning just reading it. I don't know how you're doing just listening to it. 
What is going on here? How do we untangle this? How are we possibly going to make head nor tail of this? Remember the principle. John is talking about what was, what is, and what is still to come. And one of our problems is this. The temptation is very real for us to get caught up in the minutia of the 42 months, the 1,260 days, and let me encourage you not to do that. Numbers in Revelation, most of the time, now and again there's an exception, but most of the time are symbolic. And what John is saying is this, it is a prolonged period, but it is not an eternal eternal period. In other words, it will come to an end. The time of persecution and oppression and war and mayhem and violence is limited. That's the point he's, he wants to get his original readers and for us to grasp as well. And what he's saying is that even in the midst of all of that, he's reinforcing the point, I will preserve my church. Remember the well-known passage in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus said, And the gates of Hades will come against it, but I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's what's going on here. And that's what John is eager to tell his uh, original readers and us as well. Now let me pause for a second because I've thrown an awful lot at you this morning. Back in December the 11th, three four months ago, two weeks before Christmas Day. In downtown Cairo, there is a well-known Coptic church called St. Peter and St. Paul's. And if you're in Cairo, it's always worth visiting, or at least it used to be. On the morning of Sunday the 11th of December, in the middle of a worship service, a bomb went off, killing 25 people and injuring 45 or 47 others. Now, folks, when we are tempted to think that persecution and oppression was in eternity past or maybe in eternity to come, please understand this. The persecution of Christian people around the world is very real today. The folks in Cairo were not turning over vehicles, smashing windows. It wasn't a protest march. They were quietly gathering to worship God. God, and their lives were taken. Now, let me go a step further as we get further into the passage and drill down. Please remember, and you're educated in biblical uh, literacy enough to know this, that the figures in Revelation are considered symbolic, not statistical. Symbolic. They have a theological significance, not a mathematical significance. So, please resist, as we said earlier, desire to get caught up in the minutia. Now, having said all that, let's go further. He talks about the two witnesses. Now, what are we to make of the two witnesses? What are we to make of the language that talks of that great city, Sodom, or that great city, Egypt? Well, the two witnesses, if you look closer at the language again, it's symbolic, figurative language that refers to Elijah who was able to close up the sky, and it did not rain for three years under his ministry. It was the same Elijah who called down fire from heaven to show the prophets of Baal the 
power and grace of God at work. And so John is making reference to the ministry of Elijah and also the ministry of Moses. And you remember towards, well, it's in the first, well, early section of Exodus where Moses completes one plague after another, after another, after another. And in fact, one of the final plagues, he turns water into blood. And so the language used there highlights Moses and Elijah saying that when they were under persecution and oppression, they stood firm for the things of God. That's the point John is getting across. And he's saying to us and his original readers, stand firm, God has got you. He's looking after you. You may live with fear. You may feel as if you're living in chaos, but He has you. That's the point He's making. Now, there's talk of lampstands and olive trees, and that comes from Zechariah chapter 4, when Zechariah was under persecution and oppression by the king of his day, and he stood firm. So, those are the principles involved. But notice what comes next. Verse 7, now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Now, when John is talking of the beast coming from the abyss, please understand this. The beast coming from the abyss is evil. This is not just a misunderstanding about who Christians are or a misrepresentation, but it is evil who is out to destroy anything that Christianity would stand for. That's how serious it is. And the beast that comes from the abyss will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. And then verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom. And Sodom, of course, as you know, is biblical imagery for a place of moral and spiritual decay. That's why he's using the term Sodom. And Egypt, of course, is the great oppressor. All of that is going on there. And then he says, for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, and language, and nation will gaze on their body and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other's gifts, because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. And then verse 11 is the good news, but after three and a half days, God will then breathe life into them and they will come back to life and go to spend eternity with Him. That's what's going on. Now, folks will often say, especially today, in our society and culture, the judgment of God is to be considered primitive, archaic, barbaric. Do Christians really believe that these days? And I will often hear that. Now, hold that thought because society would characterize the judgment of God in those terms, primitive, barbaric, archaic, not for life in the 21st century. We know so much better these days. Hold that thought. I'm coming back to it. Also in society and in our culture, when a young lady discovers she's expecting a baby, many in our society and culture will say this, that if that lady seeks to terminate that life, that is a straightforward moral choice for her. And that is how it's characterized. But they will never, ever, ever characterize the judgment of God as His own moral choice. Do you see the point? You cannot have it both ways. 
God is considered barbaric, archaic, and primitive, and the young lady who wants to take the life of the child inside her has given a pass as a moral choice. And society never suggests that that is barbaric, archaic, and primitive. Folks, hear me when I say this. The logic is crystal clear. It's startling. And hear me when I say this, and I think you know me well enough to understand I am not an alarmist, and I don't often exaggerate for the sake of it. But please hear this. We are living in a day and age where a culture war exists for the heart and mind and soul of this nation. And if Christian people are not willing to stand up and say there are such things as moral and spiritual values and some things are clearly wrong and some things are clearly right, if we as a church are not willing to do that, we stand on the edge of moral and spiritual bankruptcy. We absolutely do. And there is a gradual whittling away of moral standards across our nation. Across our nation. And people are being attacked for political views and religious views. And here is the issue. They don't focus on the issue. They attack the person. Attack the person. And it has to stop. All of that is wrapped up here in applying this passage. Now, having said all of that... You may be saying, okay, Richard, I see it, I get it, I understand the connection between the judgment of God and Christians standing for moral and spiritual values. Richard, I sometimes get a little uncomfortable when Christians talk about salvation and a relationship with the living God, because it seems that you talk in a narrow way, and that Christianity is narrow. Is that the case, how come salvation is narrow? Well, let me try and respond if I may. Christianity would be narrow in our thinking if we said that salvation depended on your diet, and you're only allowed to eat this kind of food and not that kind of food. You have to fast six or seven times in the course of a week. And if you fast enough each day and each week and each month, maybe you'll work your way into heaven. That's narrow. If you're saying you have to pay $500 a month in order to get into heaven, that's narrow. When you say things like you have to pray five times a day, these set prayers, that's narrow. The gospel is anything but narrow. It's wonderful, and it's gracious, and it embraces all people from every culture and tongue and tribe and language over all eternity. And the gospel is for everyone who has ever lived in any situation, and it brings hope and transformation and forgiveness and mercy and love and grace that's not narrow. It's the very opposite. So when someone says to you, you're being narrow in your view of salvation, explain to them it's the opposite. When society feels it's narrow, this is why. Because God sets out standards and says to society and culture, you have no right to determine your own truth. That's why it feels narrow. 
You have no right to determine or make God in your own image. That's why it feels narrow, because what God is doing and biblical standards is doing is challenging the society and the culture we live in. That's why it feels narrow. Now, folks, hear me when I say this. Our culture and society are absolutely delighted that we meet for worship three times on a Sunday. Absolutely delighted. If that is your thing, blessings, go for it, and they will encourage us forever. But as soon as you step outside this door and say there are moral and spiritual values that as Christian people we hold sacred, then you run into opposition and oppression and persecution. Now, in the United States, thank goodness, it's not physical. You may be marginalized or minimized or thought odd or too holy. I think we can live with that. But whenever you take a moral stand, they will come after you with a vengeance. Please understand that. Now, having said all of that, let me close with this thought. That as Christian people, the gospel is not narrow. It's abundant and loving and gracious. And when we take a stand morally for the holiness of God and the sanctity of life and on matters of marriage and sexuality, we're doing it not in a strident way, not in an arrogant way, but a gentle and loving and gracious way. Let me finish with a poem, which I read about a year ago, but it sums up all I want to say as we finish this morning. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not shouting that I'm saved. I'm whispering, I was lost. That is why I chose this way. When I say I am a Christian, I don't speak of this with pride. I'm confessing that I stumble and I need Christ to be my guide. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak, and I need to pray to carry on. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not bragging of success. I'm admitting I have failed and sinned and cannot pay my own debt. When I say I am a Christian, I'm not claiming to be perfect, my flaws are all too visible, but God believes I'm worth it. When I say I am a Christian, I still, still feel the sting of pain. I have my share of heartaches, which is why I speak His name. When I say I am a Christian, I do not wish to judge. I have no authority. I only know that I am loved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. And thank you for your eternal grace and love lavished upon us day by day. And Father, we freely confess there are times when we don't take a stand for you. And we sin in our own lives. And we ask you to forgive us and cleanse us. And yet, Father, we also ask for the equipping and enabling grace of your love 
that when we are challenged on our faith by our society and the culture around us, that we will gently stand firm for you, the living God. Father, help us never to do it with arrogance, but to do so humbly, because we know what it means to be humbled by your grace and to be cleansed and forgiven. Father, help us, please, as we go into a new week to find our confidence in you and to be leaning upon your love and grace for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you missed a Sunday? Go to our website to watch previous broadcasts, download a podcast, or purchase a CD or DVD. And don't forget to connect with First Pres by liking us on Facebook and Twitter, signing up to receive emails, or requesting prayer online.